0: we bow our heads and, uh, and pray together. Heavenly Father, in the hearing of your word, uh, in the setting out of your, uh, the, these signs of your love in bread and wine, may it be for us too that today uh, salvation has come to our own house. In Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know whether you were here last Sunday evening when we looked at uh, chapter eight of Nehemiah. Uh, do turn to Nehemiah, if you would. We're a, kind of around page 493-ish. And the basic story there is that faced with the reading of God's law, which hadn't been read for a while, there was uh, a lot of uh, weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth, as it were, amongst the people, as they realized, oh no, we haven't done this stuff for so long. Uh, and Nehemiah and the others have to say to the people, no, 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 that's not why we read it. We... Okay, you may have to go through that, but actually what we wanted was a celebration. We want you to go back to Uh, your homes, and keep the law of God, especially the law, uh, this uh, celebration that they go on to at the end of chapter eight of tabernacles. We want to remind you that it is possible to follow God's law. And so in chapter nine, kind of as we've experienced in the reading that we had, what they do is they kind of organize all of that feeling They celebrate what God has done for them down the years and in history. And as part of that uh, celebration, they uh, kind of recount the narrative. Uh, You did this for us. It was amazing. The Red Sea, Moses, Abraham, all of that. But we did this. But then you did more good stuff. But then we did this. And it's, it's, a, it's an interesting mixture of the praises of God for all that he has done. But then, uh, coming towards the end, they did not serve you or turn from their evil ways, verse 35 of chapter 9. There's a recognition that God has acted faithfully, but we, the people, have done wrong. And then it carries on, and in view of all this, end of chapter 9, We are making a binding agreement. We've heard from Nehemiah, we're going to keep the feasts, we're going to go back to the festivals, we're going to do things to do with the law of God. But uh, first of all, we kind of set out this recitation of how our history has been, and then in response, we're going to make a binding agreement. And what did that agreement consist in? Well, uh, for the the names nerds uh, among us, of which there are probably none at all, The uh, first 19 verses are full of fascinating insights and interest, but I'm going to skip over them. Uh, I'm going to hit uh, verse 20. And I want just to kind of skip through quickly what it is that's in this binding agreement, because having had chapter 9, we didn't have chapter 10 read. All these people, verses uh, 19... uh, Is it? No, sorry, verse 28 through to uh, 29, all of these people, they identify who is it that's making this agreement. First of all, verse 30, we promise not to give our daughters in marriage. One of the things that was a really big deal for Nehemiah and Ezra um, uh, was that what was happening as they returned the people from uh, exile, very few, feeling very weak and feeble, and they started to intermarry with the populations around them possibly with good intentions to re-establish a people. But Nehemiah and I said, no, 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 that's faithless. God will re-establish the people. Don't you worry about it. The important thing is that you keep the boundaries of the people. So we are not going to give our daughters in marriage to the surrounding nations. It's an identity issue. And in fact, all of the things that are in this binding agreement are issues of who we are as a people. So first of all, uh, no intermarriage. Secondly, We're going to keep the Sabbath again. So, verse 31 when the neighboring peoples bring merchandise or grain to sell on the Sabbath, we're not going to buy from them or on any holy day. And then there's going to be the Sabbath of years. Every seventh year we will forego working the land and will cancel all debts. So, there's going to be uh, no intermarriage. We're going to guard the boundaries of the people. And then secondly, we're going to be obedient to this marker of our character as God's people. We are going to keep the Sabbath, the Sabbath of the week and the Sabbath of years. And that, that of course, I assume we kind of all realize it. No one was doing anything like that. Uh, around them were all the peoples who would work and work and work for weeks and weeks and then keep the odd religious festival here and there randomly scattered according to the year. No, no, this was going to be a regular weekly marker. We're going to mark ourselves out as different. And then uh, there is a a marker to do with the temple. Uh, Verse 32, we're going to give a third of a shekel for the service of the house of our God. For the bread, for the grain offerings, uh, for the holy offerings, for sin offerings, for all the duties, verse 33, of the house of our God. Uh, not only are we going to kind of uh, bring what has to be sacrificed, we're going to make it possible for it to be sacrificed, because in verse 34, they're going to bring the wood to make this possible. This is very detailed. Uh, This is like like you completing uh, some sort of form to say, I promise to give Holy Trinity uh, this much money every year. Oh, and by the way, I'm going to leave instructions that it shall be collected in the following fashion... Um, and the uh, security truck from uh, SecuraCorp is going to turn up uh, at the door every Monday after Sunday so that it can get taken to the bank. I mean, this is very detailed stuff that, that they, they, said they say we're setting aside the wood. So they're going to keep the uh, obedience, they're going to be obedient to the temple tax, and they're going to be obedient to the, what the law had to say about the offerings. And most of what's left is about the offerings. We're going to bring, verse 35, the first fruits of our crops and every fruit tree. We're going to bring, verse 36, the firstborn of our sons and our cattle, uh, our herds and our flocks to the house of our God. Verse 37, we're going to bring to the storeroom the first of our ground meal, of our grain offerings, the fruit of our trees and of our new wine and oil. And we're going to bring a tithe of our crops to the Levites. The Levites were the sort of huge, they were um, the, the tribe that didn't have land. So they depended on the offerings that rolled in. And the Levites themselves, or huge numbers of those, uh, had a, a kind of uh, subdivision within them of the group of the priests. And from all the tithes that were brought to the Levites, the Levites tithed a tithe, and that kept the priests going, and they say that's exactly what they're going to do. Uh, and uh, verse 38, again, they're going to be specific. Uh, they're going to make sure there's an accountant ready. They say a priest descended from Aaron is to accompany the Levites when they receive the tithes, just to make sure that they do get it all in. And the Levites are to bring a tenth of the tithes up to the house of our God to the storerooms of the treasury to make sure it all gets delivered. Now, across Exodus and Deuteronomy and various other bits of the Old Testament law, all these things were in place. There's nothing new here. What's new is bringing it all together. Because Exodus has some of these bits, and Deuteronomy has some of these bits, But actually, we have no firm knowledge that any of it ever actually happened. It may well be that this is the first time that someone says, oh yeah, now we've rediscovered this, we really are going to do it, and that they did it. All of it is about identity. They're going to have pure marriage. They're going to be obedient to Sabbath days and years. They're going to pay the temple tax, and they're going to sort out the offerings. There is one element that is completely new here, though. Up to this point, uh, the temple was maintained entirely from the revenues of the monarch, whoever it was at the time. It was kind of part of the dues that it meant to be the king. If you were the king, then you kind of paid for the upkeep of the temple. But this is after the exile. And if you... How many of you have been to a Jewish synagogue for worship? Okay. How many of you have been to a Jewish synagogue at all? Just look at the place. Okay, that's a few more. What happens in a synagogue largely derives from this period of, of, of the Jewish writings. What happens now is the shift from sacrifices to the beginning of this emphasis on performing the law as it's written. So although, yes, there is now this, yes, there's the temple tax, yes, there's the the offerings and sacrifices that need to be undertaken, one of the things that's new now, and it spreads throughout, is that they're all going to pay the temple tax. There's a kind of democracy begins to be recognised among God's own people. It's not only now going to be for the king to keep the temple going, going to be for all of us to keep the temple going. We tend to think that there was a time in the life of Israel where the spirit fell perhaps upon the occasional king, the occasional judge, but really we wait until Jesus, for the Holy Spirit of God, to fall upon all his people. And indeed that is the case. But we do begin to see from now on this this developing spirit of it's for all of us. We all are part of this people, and all the people are to maintain this identity. Now, what I want to draw attention to is verse 38 of chapter 9. In view of all this, we are making a binding agreement. Because I want to recognize what it is that could have been their response If their response to their own sinfulness, which was there in chapter 8, and to a recognition that it's kind of their fault that they are in deep trouble uh, at the end of chapter 9, because they're still feeling the oppression of uh, foreign forces, it would have been so easy, would it not, for them to say, well, in response to that, we give up. We're just in despair been dragged off to exile. Pitiful numbers of us have come back. Against tremendous opposition, we've put up a bit of a wall, and yes, it's it's okay. We've made some allocation of the, the lands within it. But really, this is so far short of what we were promised. It's our fault. And if it's still, if even after we've come back from exile, it's still not right. They could have given up and gone to despair. And I think that matters, because I rather suspect that that's a challenge for lots of us. When we know, I'm I'm assuming, by the way, that I'm talking to people, um, not those who have once in their life come upon the awareness that they are sinners, but are acutely aware that week after week, we are sinners. Uh, are acutely aware that we still didn't get it right this week, that whatever that problem was, it happened again. That we did something randomly new, and still not what God would have wanted. And in the face of that reality that happens to us again and again, there are times I think you would be an unusual follower of Jesus Christ if you didn't at times say to yourself about yourself, I give up. Surely there's just no point in keeping going. I am obviously no good at this lark of following Jesus. There's simply, "Look look at all that God has done for me. Look at what I say in church Sunday after Sunday, and yet in my heart of hearts, I've gone a different way again. What's the point? For our own hearts and minds when you look at the life that you have lived, the last day, the last week, month, year, whatever, what answer would you give if I said, now complete this sentence, in view of all this? In view of all that you know yourself to have been and done in the last period, what follows? And so it's extraordinary, isn't it, that for them, in view of all this, in view of all this total disaster that they have acknowledged is their fault, they are still saying, we're going to make a binding agreement. There is something about the mercy of God that draws out of us, not despair, but worship. Because that's what this is in chapter 10. It's a declaration of how they propose to worship God. And it's the worship of free hearts, saying we, no one, no one is binding us, we are making a binding agreement upon ourselves. And they do it in what I suggest, quickly, uh, and just for the sake of uh, holding it together, are three areas. First of all, it's character, their identity. It's the recovery of a sense that the people of God matter as the people of God, They're recognizing that their sin, even this appalling set of sins that they've just recited, has not undone their identity from God's own point of view. They're going to stand out from the world. They're not going to intermarry with everyone else around them. They're going to say, yes, we do have this identity as the people of God, and we are going to keep distinctive, even if it causes us some problems, even if we're smaller than we might be. which may be a good thing to remind us about. That it can be a good thing to stand out and not to follow the world around us. It can be a good thing for Christians to stand out. And I mention two. One, restrictively. We do have different standards of sexual ethics from the rest of the world around us. And sometimes there are voices heard in the church saying... Oh, but if we stand out too much, then the world won't love us and the world won't follow Jesus. We won't be able to persuade the world. To which God seems to say here, look, that's my problem. You just get on with holding your identity together. There are times when identity needs to be restrictive in that, that way. But I also, because I was thinking that was the kind of, that's the obvious one. I thought, well, there are, there are other times too, not, not restrictive, but abundantly. I remember Claire Short the um, uh, Secretary of State, as she then was, for overseas development, saying that she would go abroad to projects here, there, and everywhere uh, around the majority world. And she would say it was interesting that uh, uh, all the government agencies would leave, and that would leave just the NGOs and the churches. And then under pressure, the NGOs would leave. But again and again, she said, we found that the people that stayed on the ground to serve those in need, were the churches. Sometimes we stand out restrictively, and we might look at our ethics. Sometimes we stand out for our abundance, for our generosity of spirit. It's not a bad thing to stand out. So there's a character there. Secondly, there's a care, because the Sabbath, of course, was a social provision. If you're not working on a Sunday... Sunday now, Sabbath then, there is time to to take a break. You can't oppress someone if there isn't anyone to oppress because you're all taking a break. The Sabbath is a caring provision for society. And then, thirdly, there is this sense of uh, not just character, not just care, but everything being done in common. Uh, uh, This tax, as far as we can tell, for the upkeep of the house of God, though it's in the law, from way, way, way back, had actually never been paid, and neither had the offerings all been organized, and that's actually why they explain why the secure van has to come, and a priest has to assess the, making sure that it all gets gathered in safely. The offerings had never, as far as we can tell, actually been organized. Okay, how is it going to happen? But Nehemiah is a great organizer, and he arranges it. And everyone is now going to do it. It's not just the kings and the princes. If you read back through Nehemiah, it's clear that the kings and the princes have got a huge responsibility for things having gone wrong. But now as we look to how things are going to go right, according to Nehemiah, everyone is going to take the responsibility. It would have been all too easy for chapter 9 to lead into a chapter 10 that had one of two approaches. One would have been a judgment from God. Yes, it is your fault. You are a waste of space. You are history. Goodbye. The other one would be a kind of crushing mercy, if I can put it like that. And by that, I mean this. Uh, yes, this is your fault, but it doesn't matter who you've been. It doesn't matter what you've done. This is my covenant. I'm going to uphold it, whatever you do. And the glory of this story, and why it can be helpful for us, is that God takes us seriously. He doesn't just sideline the people. Even when they're consistently failing, he's still interested in their response to his love and his care. And he wants them to pick up and start again. Mercy from God is meant to be creative. It doesn't just obliterate you. It's not an idea that we play with, but it's something that calls response out of us. Someone told me uh, this morning of, uh, uh, of a story, um, true story, about some homeless people in Norwich who, uh, over the last year or so, have made genuine, real commitments to Jesus Christ and whose lives have been turned round. Now, if those lives have been turned round, it's because what they have found in the mercy of God is a resource with which to recreate the life as they receive it. They have believed that God could take even them seriously. When the rest of the world gives them no time, no attention, avoids their eyesight, God takes them seriously and invites them into a relationship. Or think of our reading from the New Testament of Zacchaeus, who is declared to be, if you remember the words from Jesus, this son of Abraham. And in the words we read from from Nehemiah 9, there is that consistent faithfulness of God. And so Jesus says, look, yes, he may be a tax collector, but he is also a son of Abraham and the covenant is there for him. And so the mercy of God is such as will be able to recreate even a tax collector like Zacchaeus. And therefore salvation has come to this house. Therefore salvation can be the recovery of what was lost, because God values Zacchaeus. He doesn't just start over again And that for me is hugely important because which one of us has not been in a situation where faced with our own sinfulness, we know God could have said, I'm going to forget all about you. You're beyond hope. I'm not going to stay with you. I'm going to go somewhere else. I'm going to have fun somewhere else with someone who will be much more obedient to me but it doesn't matter how far down you go. And this people went all the way down. God still cares enough, not just to obliterate us, but to pick us up and value the binding agreement that we make. The story in Luke, the story in Nehemiah, represents a particular kind of hope. Even as we come to communion this evening, we have sinned again. We're fed up with ourselves, again. We wonder, again, whether God might not just give up on us. But God's approach to us is extraordinary. Even when we've acknowledged that we've again and again failed him, we remain those whose response he still cares about. Because his fundamental desire has always been to have a people to praise him. So it matters to him that we guard our identity and our character, that we express it in common among us, and that it's shown to the world in our care of one another. Let's pray. A moment of silence just to let God know your delight That he should continue to value your response, despite what you know to be the realities of failure. Lord God, quite randomly I find myself um, struck with a picture, uh, the cliché picture of uh, the lover pulling uh, little petals off a flower going, going, he, he loves me, he loves me not. She loves me, she loves me not. And as we come before you tonight, we give you thanks that the last petal on that flower is always he loves us. That whether or not we've loved you, the last petal is always, he loves us. Give us the grace to make in our hearts every moment, every day, that binding agreement. And as we break it, as break it we will, to come back to you and know, He he loves us. He loves us. He loves us. Amen.